reason that we have decided to call this series King's Ransom is because of what Jesus tells us about his ministry here in the passage that we have today, that he came to be a ransom for many. And so it is so important that we just grasp what that means. And as I, as I try and find the right way to come into the significance and the importance of this passage for your life, I've been struck by a simple question that every single one of us has an answer in our heart. It's not the same answer, but every single one of us has an answer to this question. Uh, this question is this. What is the truest thing about you? What is the truest thing about you? Uh, this question, I, I'm indebted to a, another pastor named David Lomas, who actually wrote a book by this name. But he, he, uh, he writes this book on the question of how we form our identities. And every single one of us have a, a formed identity, an answer to the question, who am I? And who am I is really the same question as what is the truest thing about you? So for some of us, when you think what is the truest thing about you, you go to what you do. Uh, this, is, this is typical for, for a lot of men. You, you get into a new social situation and uh, tell me about yourself. And the first thing you go into is your job. Your, your career, what you do, how you make money, or whatever. And so there is a, a sense that we find our identity in what we do. Some of us maybe find our identity in what we have done. That can either be something we have done that's really good, like uh, we can kind of live in our success stories of the past, we can look at, at, at our, our you know, significance in uh, where we worked or, or the, the academic career we did or our sports or whatever. But also we can find our identity, and lots of people do this, in the things that have happened to them or the mistakes that they have made. Perhaps the truest thing about you is you're a victim. Perhaps the truest thing about you uh, is that you are a failure. Perhaps the truest thing about you is uh, you're a divorcee or you're a child of a broken home or any number of things that become very core to how we say, this is who I am. Some of us might take the question another direction and they find their identity, the truest thing about them, and what they have or don't have. So they, they, they find who they are in the fact that they are wealthy or they have all these toys or maybe they find their identity in the fact that they want but they don't have. Some of us find our identity in, in a tribe. We're seeing this uh, a, a lot in our modern culture. Who, who, whose team are you on? Right? Everybody, everybody's voting or rooting for the Chiefs today. Uh, and if they lose, we'll all feel a little bit of pain in our heart, right? Because that's our tribe. 
We have become, uh, in some ways, a tribalistic culture where we just have tribes in war all the time. And we feel wins and losses, our value, our success, our identity wrapped up in those. Still others will locate the truest thing about them in, in their desires. We have a, an entire world that, that, that wants to say, make your desire, your orientation, your uh, sexuality, make that your identity, as an example. But we, we, we have all sorts of ways that we can identify the truest thing about us, or what we've, we do or have done, have, what our tribe is, what our desire is. And the, the important thing about this is that that truest thing about us becomes our identity, and it determines really everything about us. It becomes the definer. You see, uh, if your identity is a citizen, just an average citizen, and you're driving down the highway, and somebody speeds, drives recklessly uh, past you, you get very upset. You're like, you know, who, who's that jerk? But that's about all you do. Because your identity is not to do anything about the speeder. But if you're a highway patrol person and you see somebody recklessly driving down the highway, you don't react with just a bunch of uh, anger. You react out of your identity as a highway patrolman and you go and you stop the person, right? So the identity that we have, the truest thing about us, has the effect of what we do. It determines everything about us. But then here's the tragic side of when the truest thing about us is what we do or have done or have or or the tribe we're part of or the desires we have is, is this. What happens to our sense of identity when those things change? When you find your identity in what you do and it's your job and then all of a sudden you don't have a job, I can tell you uh, that it feels existentially like you are dead, like you are worthless. When you go to a party and you can't answer the question, what do you do? You feel like a nobody if you have made the truest thing about you what you do. And so here's the situation. We are a culture kind of rolling from identity crisis to identity crisis because we have made the truest thing about us something that is not the truest thing about us. Because the truest thing about us will not change, will not leave you or forsake you. And it is the only thing that you can live on with security and purpose. And really that is what the Gospel of Mark is trying to accomplish in the mindset of these disciples at this last passage before we end up in Jerusalem. This is the key transition in Mark. It is the end of Jesus' discipleship clinic where he has been explaining to these disciples what it means to follow him as the Christ. And the question that, 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 that pervades this passage is, what is the disciples' true identity? Have have they figured it out? Is it it a pursuit of stature? Are they following him for the honor it brings? 
Are they, are they following him to brag that they're an early adopter? Are they following him for the position that they have attained because they are with the entourage of the Messiah? To all of this, the, 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 the person they are following, Jesus, turns it all upside down when he says in verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, this statement is monumental. This statement is, is the gospel in a nutshell. It is the declaration of the extravagance of God's grace. But even more importantly, it is a proclamation to the disciple that this is the truest thing about you. If we grasp what it means that Jesus came to be a ransom for many, we discover an identity that is truly unshakable, that is truly the truest thing about us. In fact, this is so important that we have crafted our entire mission statement at Renew EPC around this truth. When we say that we are a people that help one another live in and live out the good news of Jesus, we are saying first and foremost, we are here to make your identity one who lives in Jesus. And if you want to know what it means to live in Jesus, there is no more fruitful words than the words Jesus gives here that he came to be a ransom for many. So the question that I want us to work through, we're going to look through four different truths, is what is the ransom given for many? Like I said, we want to see this in four different truths. The first I want us to recognize what is the ransom for many is this. The ransom is our redemption. The, the screen says price, but uh, I'd rather you write in the word redemption. The same thing. But uh, the ransom is our redemption. So this passage starts with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, and he gives his third and final prediction of the upcoming passion. His suffering, his rejection, his death, and then this cryptic statement that in three days he will rise again. This is the third time Jesus has taken his disciples and explained this to them. And every time this declaration hits the disciples like a cow looking at a new gate. They just don't know what to do with it. Right? I mean, they are absolutely oblivious. It just, right over their heads. We see that because... James and John, two of the inner circle of disciples, the, 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 the two of the three who get to be with Jesus at the rising of Jairus' daughter, at the transfiguration, who have had extra attention given to them. Of all of the disciples, they come after Jesus has just finished saying, I am going to suffer and die, and they ask the question, can we sit at your right and your left, in your glory. I mean, what a disjuncture in what Jesus just said and what the disciples are thinking about, right? 
But what does this reveal about the mindset of, of these disciples? They are, are focused on the who am I question. They are focused on their identity, and they are locating their identity in their doing. They're saying to themselves, I will be the greatest. That will be who I am if I can secure the position of being at the right and the left of Jesus. I, I, they, they are revealing themselves as people who are forming and evaluating their identity based on what they are doing, based on their status, based on the authority that they have. This is where they are. They are focused on securing their identity by the fact that they are close to Jesus and therefore are going to live in his glow, right? And so Jesus... <laughs> as patient as anyone you can imagine, doesn't just flip out. But he goes to focus them again on what he just said. He focuses them back on his sacrifice by asking them this question. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you go through the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? These questions are are, are questions directing the disciple to reflect that Jesus is not right now focused on glory. He's focused on suffering. He's focused on sacrifice. He's focused on the judgment, which is what baptism is an image of, of him going under the wrath. He is focused on the cup of, 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 of sin and rebellion that has fomented the anger of God that he is going to drink. And his disciples instead are focused on, on glory. Can they drink it? Even though they say, oh, yes, we are able. No. No, they cannot. The, the, the fact that Jesus says, can you drink it, is to tell them, you are, don't know what you are asking. Because only I am able to do what I am going to Jerusalem to do. And so Jesus, instead of answering the question, where will you be in the kingdom? He brings the, the story of the suffering and his laying his life down to the forefront. And the reason is he wants his disciples to recognize that before there is any glory, before you can have any position in the kingdom, you must be redeemed. You must be redeemed, James and John. You can't be at the left and the right of glory. You fall short of glory. Part of the cup I am about to drink, you have filled. And so we cannot talk about this question of your status in the kingdom until I do what I have come to do. And so as we think about this idea of, of this payment, this redemption, this price that Jesus says he is, he is going to, to, to endure as the ransom for many, perhaps we get a little bit like, I, I don't know if I like these economic terms about payment. But when Jesus tells us that he has come to be a ransom, um, 
The, the, the idea that, of that is uh, this idea of being in slavery, being in bondage. And so paying the ransom is, is paying the redemption price of someone who is in bondage, someone who is not free. So Jesus, when he says he is paying a ransom, he is saying he is paying off somebody's debt. He is paying off someone's price that has put them in bondage. And we maybe have a hard time grasping the way that the Bible is talking about sin in these kind of economic terms. But we're familiar with it, right? So whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's just a, a, a word that God is, is teaching us to think about our sins. And, and we still use this in our, our common language. Whenever somebody commits a crime, we describe that as having to pay back their debt to society. right? So we recognize that, that crimes have a cost. And so the Bible uses debt to represent sin. And I think that's really important. Because the definition of sin, when we recognize it as a payment, as a cost, is, is, is very profound. Here, here is the definition of, of sin that comes from this, this, this truth. Sin is a failure to render to God what we owe him. That's a whole lot different than working with sin is this vice list, right? Sin is recognizing that we are gods and we owe him our life. And everything that we do with our life, whether we have a wonderful reason or not, if it's not out of the love of God, is a departure from our service to God and is something that we fail to deliver that we owe him. We owe him both doing good and we owe him both not doing wrong. There is a positive and a negative. But this idea of a payment recognizes that our life is owed to God. And if, if our life comes up in debt to the one we owe, then we have a massive payment. Right? Now, another aspect of this is how can the cost for our sins, for our disobedience, for our failure to give to God what he owes, be so high? Right? We, 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 we struggle with the, the doctrine of, of, of eternal punishment. And yet we are, we are told that, that a sin has an eternal punishment to it. There's a logic all the way through the law of God that basically says this, that the penalty is proportionate to the crime. The punishment is designed to fit the crime. The way that we know that the punishment is fair is that it is the right size to the crime. And so a lot of us are like, what have I possibly done that could have an eternal punishment? How, how, how could even the worst thing I do in this world be an eternal punishment. I, again, think this concept of, of the economics of sin helps us. Um, 
About six years ago, the most money ever spent on a piece of art uh, was, was done at auction. A person spent $450 million to buy a Da Vinci painting that was on the market. $450 million to buy this painting. Now, is the, is the painting worth $450 million because uh, Da Vinci used really good paint? Is it $450 million because he painted on a diamond canvas? No. The, the reason that this piece of art sold for $450 million is because it was a masterpiece of a master artist, right? It is the artist that made this piece $450 million value in the eyes of the world. It's what made it priceless. Now, let me, let me just, just imagine one of my kids got, gets to go over to this person's house, and this person has their $450 million painting on display, uh, and, and one of my kids just trips and spills all of their super red Kool-Aid all over the, the painting. Is the cost of that crime the Kool-Aid? that was spilled. No. The cost of that, and we don't even need to use the word crime, of that infraction, is that it destroyed something that was $450 million. Right? So we don't look at, well, it was only Kool-Aid. We look at what it destroyed. We look at what it did. It destroyed a masterpiece. And that is why it suddenly has the price tag of $450 million. So if my daughter came in and said, I had a $450 million oopsie, she has just taken on a debt that will take a thousand lifetimes, right? Because what she destroyed was that precious, right? Well, here's what I want you to recognize. You bear the image of the true master artist. You bear the image of God. You were designed to reflect the full glory of God, the majesty of God, the nature of God. You are impressed with the image of God, the great creator the Almighty, the master worker of all masterworks. You are given His image. And every time you commit a sin, whether you think it is large or not, you are slashing that image with a box cutter. Rather than reflecting the glory and the beauty and the divinity and the the sophistication of the one you were born to image, you are instead turning around a caricature. You are defacing and defiling the most precious and priceless image. And now I think we can recognize Why is the penalty so high? Because in every sin, you are putting slander upon the image of God. 
And there is the crux. When we sin, it is not the size of the sin that we think we commit. It is the defacing of the image of God that we were created to bear. The willful defacing of this image is what makes it so costly. We have a debt that is unpayable because we have all taken the image of God and added grossness to it, right? And this is why the psalmist in Psalm 49, 7 and 8 can say, um, what's on the screen, I believe, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly. And can never suffice. If we recognize how much sin has defaced the image of God, then we recognize that the ransom that is required to pay our price is greater than we could ever return. And so, where does our ransom come from? The ransom teaches us that we need redeemed. But the the second truth of this ransom is that the ransom is God's son. God's son. Verse 33, we're, we're told the son of man will be delivered over. The son of man will be delivered over. For, for this great price of sin, this, this ransom to be paid, there's a there's a logic also to what can pay this ransom. And there's really two things that that are required for this ransom to be paid. First, the the, the payment must be in kind. And second, the payment must be sufficient. What do I mean by that? When I say in kind, I I mean that the the payment for our sin debt must be from, from one of us. It must be from a substitute. The the Old Testament sacrificial system is built on this understanding that life must be given for life. The whole reason that a, a sacrifice was mandated was because the person who brought the sacrifice, their sin required their life. But God in his grace said, I will allow your sin to be paid by the life of this sacrifice. And so these sacrifices would be taken to purchase that person's life. That's that's the economy of of the, the system. So life has to be given for life. There has to be a substitute. But there was also the other problem, that the sacrifice had to be sufficient. It had to be able to bear the payment for sins. And so when we come to the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 10, we're told that all of these sacrifices that the Old Testament uh, performed were were not adequate enough to actually take away sin. We're told in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There there was an accommodation that God made in the Old Testament To say, you who feel guilty for your sin, I'm going to allow you to bring a bull or a goat or whatever and sacrifice it to uh, take away the guilt of your sin. 
But in the New Testament, we're, we're told, you know, sheep and bulls don't really stand in the place of men and women. A, a, a really in-kind sacrifice, one that can really bear the guilt, must be someone who is one of us. And so the, the, the reality is all of the sacrifices that the Old Testament performed, they were uh, credits being made against Christ's cross in the New Testament. But that's another day, another discussion. But for now... There is only one sacrifice that is a true substitute and that is truly sufficient to pay for our sins. And that is Jesus, right? Why? The first is Jesus is, is God's son. What, is, uh, what does God say at the transfiguration? He says, behold, this is my beloved son. Jesus is God's son. He is, he is man, but he is more than just a man. He is also God's son. I, I, I define probably the greatest moment in my life, the, the moment of becoming a dad. So, uh, we, we go into the delivery room. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I don't know what all this is about. I mean, this was, you know, yeah, we're having a baby, but it's just this big bump that sometimes does like a little alien kick thing on my wife's stomach. But, you know, it was, it was still abstract. And then when, when my baby is born into the air and lets out this most ear-splitting, beautiful cry. My entire life just flipped over. I was no longer anyone else but this baby's dad. I'm a dad, and I, I raced to get to this little boy, and all I did with this little squirmy, mucus-covered baby was say over it, I'm your dad. I'm your dad. And my heart became so big and so full of love, it became so fast. I, I, I don't understand how you can fall in love that quick. But, but I've said it many times that five minutes before my baby was born, I wouldn't know I was missing anything. But exactly one minute after my baby was born, if I lost that baby, I could never be whole again. My heart just erupted with love. And here, here is the thing. The gigantic, weepy-sized love that I had born for my child is the palest analogy of God the Father's love for His Son. When he says, you are my beloved son, he is saying, I have loved you infinitely for an infinite amount of time. I have loved you perfectly. I have loved you without end or limit. My heart is my son. And 
And that's how we have to hear John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the gospel is the infinitely loved and precious Son has been given for us. Jesus is the only ransom. He alone is the God-man. He alone is the one who is the sacrifice that is in kind and sufficient. He is the only one who can be our substitute and take the full penalty for our sin. What does verse 38 say? Verse 38 says, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He alone can drink the cup. And so the ransom is God's Son. And I, I have to make this clear. There is nothing prejudicial or mean-spirited to tell you that Jesus is the only way of salvation. The reason He is the only way of salvation is there is no one else that could offer salvation. There is no other Son, and it took the Son's willingness to be our ransom to pay our debt. If God had to give His Son to pay our ransom, then there is no other way. There is no other way. And we should be humbled that the only way, the giving of God's Son, was the way God gave to pay your debt. And that's why, third, we must recognize that the ransom is God's grace. It is our redemption, it is God's Son, but it is, it is God's grace. We, we come to this passage, uh, verse 32. Where, where is Jesus in all of this? They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Isn't, isn't it amazing that, that to be the ransom for many, Jesus isn't dragging behind, isn't lingering a little longer. He is in the front going to Jerusalem. He is leading the way. Jesus is marching, fulfilling the divine will. He says that the Son of Man came to give His life. Jesus came and did many good things, but if you want to locate the most essential purpose, this is the reason Jesus came. It's not to impress us with his good teaching. It's not to give us better morals. It is to die for us. The Son and the Father, in this passage, they are united. It is the Father who sins. We're told that, 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 that the Son of Man is delivered into the, the hands of men. But at the same time, the Son goes. The Son of Man came. So both the Son and the Father 
are working together. There's no tension between them. They are both at work, which means Jesus is not a victim. What happens to him is not an accident. What happens is the son gives himself as a sacrifice. And this whole thing is God's initiative. It is God's giving. The gift of the gospel, the giving of the son, it's God's gift. Dwell upon this. What we could not do, God did freely for us at the greatest cost to himself. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the ransom that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, i.e. a sufficient, satisfying substitute to be received by faith. Who does God's grace come to? Look look at verses 46 and 47 with me. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I am convicted, just reading these verses right now, of how many blind beggars I just ignore. I just walk right by. I just pat my pockets and I, yeah, don't got anything. We all walk past blind beggars. They're nobodies. They are failures in the, the meritocracy of America. We blame them most often for, for what they're doing, or we see what they're doing as, as manipulative. This is our hard heart I'm I'm preaching about here. But this blind beggar, this desperate man who could not see, all he could do was yell out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus heard the blind beggar. Jesus did not walk past the blind beggar. Jesus stopped for the blind beggar. Beggar. This is who God's grace comes to. He saves the helpless. He saves the beggar. He takes the poor in spirit and makes them children of the kingdom. The sinner who cries out, have mercy on me, is heard and receives mercy. 
to such. Jesus calls. The disciples run over to Bartimaeus and say, he is calling you. You see, it is those who come to him by faith that receive his grace. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, Bartimaeus is here to tell us there is no one disqualified. There is no one too small. There is no one whose identity has been smashed and destroyed enough that God doesn't say, my son is the ransom for you to give you mercy, to make you whole, and to save you by faith alone. And that's why the fourth truth is so important. The ransom is our price. The ransom is God's son. The ransom is God's grace. And finally, the ransom is our identity. The ransom is our identity. Look at the difference between the disciples and Bartimaeus. The disciples are here arguing who is the greatest, who's going to be the closest to Jesus, who's going to get the most glow in his glory. And then there is Bartimaeus. He owned one thing. He only had one thing. He had a cloak that kept him warm. And we're told that he left his cloak and ran to Jesus. We're not told he ever went back for it. And when, when Bartimaeus receives this grace, when his sight is restored, we are told at the last part of verse 52, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. See, Bartimaeus didn't just get new eyes. He got a brand new identity. He wasn't the blind beggar. He was the one who follows Jesus on the way. Bartimaeus saw his new identity as one who belongs to Christ and he lives it out by following. See, this is, this is what, what we must grasp. Your identity is that you have been ransomed by the Son of God. You have been purchased by the Son of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Beloved, we can say with Paul these words in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You are not ultimately what you do or what you've done or your tribe or your desires. You are ultimately God's beloved ransomed child. Paul says he gave himself for me. That's your words. He, he gave himself for me. His blood for your sins, for your soul, for your life, for, for your communion, 
Your identity is no longer any of these worldly things that fall and fail. The truest thing about you is you are redeemed. You are redeemed. This is Lilo, live in and live out. We live in by saying, I have been redeemed by him. And we live out by saying, I live my life for him. Right? But but grasp this. This is key. Bartimaeus received his new identity in Christ, and that changed what Bartimaeus did. He didn't go back to be a beggar. He became a disciple. And so the key is, if we are living in the gospel, if your identity truly is, I am redeemed, you will live it out. It will change your life. It will be what you are known for. He served, so do we. He redeemed us. And so we live with the question, how can we bring his redemption to others? I, uh, on Martin Luther King weekend, uh, we, we just wanted to watch a couple civil rights uh, movies with our kids. And one of the movies that we watched was 42, the uh, story of Jackie Robinson, which is, which is a good movie. And, and I learned a whole bunch. But I, I, was, I was struck in the story of Jackie Robinson, you know, there wasn't a, uh, a call or any pressure to integrate baseball. Not nobody was uh, saying, we need, we need to integrate. We need black uh, athletes in baseball. That, that was not cultural pressure at all. But the owner of, of the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, he believed it was time. It had to be done. And in the movie, I, I love that we discover what, what's motivating Branch. It's not the culture. It's, it's the fact that he is a man who reads the word and wants to live it out. Again and again, we get these expressions that, that this, is, this is what treating my neighbor is all about, to make the game fair. And so Branch is, is an example of a, of a man who saw that the gospel was not being lived out in a place where he was in control. And he used his power and he used his influence and he bore some bruises in in bringing Jackie Robinson. Not as many bruises as Jackie bore, but it took both of them. You see, Branch reflects what it means when you recognize You are not mastered by anybody in this world. Your identity is not by anything that can fail in this world. It is given to you because you have been purchased at the price of Christ. And therefore, you can live in this world as an agent of redemption. The power of knowing that you have been ransomed is such a freeing power. So I leave you with just one question. Have you made I am redeemed as the truest 
thing about you. I am redeemed. If you have any questions about whether you are redeemed, hear these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Beloved, put your faith in the one who is the ransom for many and you will be redeemed and you will have everlasting life. Now live it out. Amen.